Alrighty. It is good to have you here today. Yes, I did watch that game yesterday. You know, the storylines coming in were Florida State had lost their starting quarterback. The University of Florida had lost their starting quarterback. And so you start to believe the press clippings, you know. And then you go into the first corner, and we're winning. And then in the second quarter, we're losing, but by not much. Then by the third quarter, nothing changed. And in the fourth quarter, we lost the whole thing. And I thought, this is God telling me, you need more material for your sermon tomorrow. Because the title of the sermon is Finish Strong. Florida did not do that. We finished the game all right, but very weakly. It was fun, though. I, you can tell I picked my outfit out in the second quarter. And I was like, we're totally going to win this game. I already thought about what I was going to say to Bob. And then when I saw Bob today, I just said, hey, Bob. <laughs> yeah, it was it. Let's go to James chapter 4. Will you join me there, please? Really has been a nice week. Uh, weeks like this, they're, they're good, but they're also kind of disruptive. There's a lot of things going on. You got family coming in. You got, um, I mean, in our family, we have my birthday, and then, well, Remy's birthday, then mine, then Kyla's, and everything just like runs together really quickly. You're traveling, seeing family again, and all sorts of stuff like that. And there's, you know, a lot that goes on, especially in the next month, that is not what we normally do. And I wanted to teach this message because I think it's important to remember why we're doing what we're doing. We kind of take these two months off, if we're being honest. We've got a lot of different things going on, a lot of different appointments, things that are outside the norm. And then January rolls around and we, we're ready to make huge commitments, huge commitments, for which we really have not demonstrated daily faithfulness to do. I mean, think about how serious people get. December 26th, 27th, 28th, all sorts of things are ready to go. And then when January 1st hits, it's difficult, especially if the first is not on a Monday, because you can't start a diet on like a Wednesday. That's not going to work. And the gyms are crowded and all sorts of people are opening new businesses. You go look at how many website domains are registered in the month of December. There's a lot of things that people think, if I can just get these things right, then my life will be better. And it's a very tempting way to think, and I think most of the time those types of thoughts come from idolizing self, not saying every single person who wants to better themselves is idolizing themselves, but most of the time, that's the end goal. And for the believer, I think a message like today, especially a very stern warning that we're going to look at verse by verse in James 4, should be a reminder to us of how we have real spiritual success, how we can finish strong. For those of you that are familiar in the YouTube world, <clears throat> um, Quentin Road has a YouTube channel called In Grace, and that's uh, uh, Pastor Jim Scudder. He's up there, he's traveling, doing all sorts of stuff. He's got these uh, videos where he's diving, and he's in the Grand Canyon, and he's on all these different places. He's like on location type style and teaching, very apologetic as far as you know, giving you defense for the faith. Uh, but he had a series a couple of years ago called Finish Strong, it's a four-part series, and it's about his dad, um, Dr. James Scudder, and all of the work that he did after he came to put his trust in Jesus Christ alone. He came from a Methodist background, got saved at the University of Kentucky, and then left that semester to go to uh, Florida Bible College. He left Florida Bible College after he graduated and went to Illinois in Lake Zurich in uh, Chicago there, and he planted a church. <clears throat> 
And that four-part series is all about the different challenges that he faced as he just wanted to win one more person, win one more person, win one more person. And he died rather unexpectedly in 2020. And uh, it was very sudden. Um, That was something that not a lot of people were expecting. I know myself, I found out that he was in the hospital and then two days later, he passed away. It was very hard for the, for the church, um, especially during that time. It was at the very beginning of COVID. You guys remember that? How crazy it was that people literally had to watch their loved ones die through a glass? It was just insane. Not a lot of stuff was known. There was a lot of panic. And um, the Scudder family experienced that type of restriction and all those different things. Pastor Jim wrote a book called um, Healing Hurt. And he detailed all of these different things in there. And I read through half of it in about an hour and a half. It was really good. It's a good book. I would suggest that you get it and read it. But he detailed a lot about his dad's passing and how that affected him, obviously, emotionally, but spiritually, too. Dr. James Scudder, to me, is an example of somebody who finished strong. Think of Dr. Hank Lindstrom as well, somebody who finished strong. Also, Dr. Lindstrom died very unexpectedly. I remember coming in that Sunday, uh, the week that he passed away, and I do not remember who made the announcement, but it was like all of the air was sucked out of the room. You thought, how did, how did this happen? Well, we have no idea when our day of death is, but we do know we're alive today. We have opportunity today. But there's a temptation, and it's always lurking within our first nature, within our sinful nature. There's a temptation to go after the things of the world. And you hear that from pastors all the time, the things of the world, the things of the world. We know what those things are. First John 2 tells us the lust of the eyes, the lust of the heart, and the lust of the flesh. All these, or excuse me, the pride of life. All these different things. They're, they're three main categories, but they can all get us away from finishing strong. That's what the devil wants. He wants us to be a mockery of what it is to be a child of God. A lot of people like to sell fear, Matter of fact, we just did this on our Bible Line channel. We're doing a, f- a five-part reaction video uh, to this one video. But the title of the video we're reacting to is, is this. God told me that Christians will go to hell. If we're doing like a multiple choice test, you can make that, you can mark it down that the correct answer is false prophet. <clears throat> God's not telling us things individually. He's not going around selecting some for you know, secret little special revelation truth. And also, a true child of God has no threat of hell, amen? Because all their sin is paid for. There is no reason for them to spend an eternity in hell because the very reason why they would be there has been paid by Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! But fear sells. Fear sells. A lot of people, very spiritually weak, they see a title like that and automatically the anxiety goes up. Automatically they say, is that me? I deal with this. Every week, somebody posts a video like that and they use, can you guess which passage they use? Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And then Jesus says in Matthew 7, 23, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And what those false teachers will say is, see, you have to know God. You've got to know him personally. What does that verse actually say? Jesus didn't know you. Let's just say, you know, I 
said for years and years and years that I knew somebody. I don't know, somebody famous. Let's just go with Tim Tebow, right? I said, yeah, I know Tim. We're good friends, blah, blah, blah. We talk all the time, email each other. We spend holidays together, all sorts of stuff. And then when I'm brought face-to-face to Tim Tebow and he doesn't know me, where's the problem there? I deceived myself into believing something that was a lie is the truth. And Matthew chapter 7 is saying, Jesus doesn't know you. Even though you do all this work for him, he doesn't know you, and we know earlier from the passage, because you didn't do the will of the Father, which was to believe on him for eternal life. But boy, that sells. You put that in the YouTube title, click, 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 click. Comments, comments. People, I will read them in the comments. They'll say, I'm so glad. I, I know I'm going. I'm, I'm abstaining from sin. I'm doing my very best. And it's really sad to read those comments. And they have thousands of likes. And in our culture today, boy, that's, you're somebody. If you get you know, 10,000 likes on a YouTube comment, can you imagine? Well, people start to believe, well, what I think is right, it is right. That's what the world wants to do. That's what the devil wants to do. He wants to cause you to doubt, deny, and disregard, ultimately disobeying God's word. The Holy Spirit draws all people to the Son of Man who was lifted up, and that's Jesus Christ. So everyone's going to stand without an excuse, those who did not believe, and they're going to have to give an account. It's dangerous for us as children of God to set an example that causes the gospel to be devalued. When we live in, in, in a state of chaos and panic and concern, we're stumbling through the Christian life, or we're not running at all, the world looks at that and says, hypocrite. Oh, see, that's why I don't go to church. How many times have you heard that from, from people that you know? Well, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. Well, hey, guess what? You can come too. <laughs> that might not be the best thing to say, right? <laughs> that might be, you know, the pastor speaking in his mind there. But we're all, we, we're all sinners, amen? That, that did not change. We all still have a sinful nature. What changed is now we have a right standing with God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So this message is for the believer, the person who has already put their trust in Jesus Christ. You're born again, didn't have to do anything for that to happen. That happened instantaneously. The blood of Jesus Christ has been applied totally to your sin. You have no more sin, which separates you from God. You are now held by the Son, which is held by the Father. And in John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And in John 10, 31, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Why? Because they understood what he meant. He is God. You are held by him. But we have an adversary. And it's not your boss. It's not a coworker. It's not a political system. Those may be tools of the adversary, but they're not the adversary. The adversary is the devil. And he does not rest. He does not take a day off. He did not, on your birthday, he doesn't go, all right, you get one free day. It's not how that works. He rabidly hates you. The world says, well, you know, he's trying to get people so he can, you know, build in his kingdom there in hell. No, no. Hell is created for the devil and his angels. The devil tried to get Christ to sin in Matthew 4. 
He did get man to sin in Genesis 3. And in Matthew 4, we see how the Lord thwarted that temptation. How did he do it? He quoted the word. Boy, that's a really important note, right? We should pay attention to that. What did Jesus do? He quoted the word, so I should do the same. You can't quote something you don't know, amen? Trust me, I've seen that. Seen that happen before in my own life. I'm there, sophomore year, staring at a memory verse. And I can try, try, try all that I want to quote that verse, but if I don't know it, I got to shamefully write. I don't know how many times Mr. Gilbert saw this on one of my tests. I don't know it. And I thought many times to put in parentheses, like our Lord, show me grace. <laughs> but I did not. <laughs> I did not. You know, that would, that would not have been good. <laughs> A lot of Christians trying to go through the Christian life and they, they don't even know what God says about the struggles they're going to experience. That's a recipe for pulling a hamstring, so to speak, for a season-ending injury, something to happen to you that puts you on the sideline indefinitely. Doesn't mean you can't get back in, but boy, people love to be the victim. People love to be the victim. There's a whole mindset out there that you got to go find your victim card and then play it. That's not for the Christian. And we're going to cover three major things this morning that I believe are an encouragement from a very strong rebuke from James. Now, James, I like James, okay? Not because he rebukes strongly, but because he has what I call concentrated truth. I remember when I was mopping the back building during college, and we, I bought this solution of cleaner, and it was huge. It's literally a bottle like this big, and it is full of this thick, goopy soap. And I did not know the difference. Somebody laughed over here. It's probably Stephanie because she knows. I did not know the difference between diluted cleaning solution and what? Concentrate. So I'm filling up that thing like I normally would. Glug, glug, glug. Way too many glugs. Way too many. And I'm, this stuff is hitting the bottom of the mop bucket like... I'm like, that is thick. This must be good. The floors are going to be brand new. I'm going to mop these. They're going to turn into hardwood. This is going to be great. <laughs> then I add water. <laughs> the amount of bubbles that instantly came up, I mean, the, there's probably this much water in the mop bucket, and the bubbles are overflowing. And you know, me and my, I mean, I was born to be a husband, amen? I was just like, well, if it overflows, it overflows. The bubbles are always good. Well, I realized as soon as I put the mop bucket in there, it was still very goopy. And I'm like mopping the floors, and this stuff is like almost like crackling on the floor. <sighs> well, I learned very quickly the difference between concentrated cleaner and diluted cleaner. The concentrated cleaner, it's still good, but you got to have it in a small amount. The diluted stuff you get, you can glug, 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 that's fine, because it's, it's diluted, and that's how it's supposed to be. When I read the book of James, I see a lot of concentrated truth. He does not add a little water to make it easier to go down. He tells you very plainly. He starts off in chapter 1. He says, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Do you know what that means? There's no success in the double-minded man. None. Some people, it's a badge that they wear that they're double-minded. They ride the fence as if, oh, look at them. They're so educated, but they can't make a decision. You got to be on one side or the other. 
You're either going to believe God can help you through your Christian life, or you're going to believe that the world can help you through your Christian life. You can't have it both ways. John, who's kind of the opposite of James, he writes with a little more taste. John says, there is no darkness in God. He's all light. If you walk in darkness and say you're walking in the light, what does John say? You're a liar. Have any of you been called a liar to your face? Very uh, uncomfortable, right? That may have happened at some Thanksgiving tables this week, you know? <laughs> People are already, you know, kind of just the world that we live in right now. It's like, it's like a powder keg and you just like someone throws one thing in there and it blows up. But you call somebody a liar, you better make sure that you, you lined up your shot. And John says, you are a liar if you walk in darkness and say you walk in the truth. That is not true of you. James says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Why is this important? Because you need to know the truth in order to be free in your Christian life. What a lot of Christians are doing is they're shackling themselves and calling it freedom. Well, I can have my cake and, and eat it too. That's not how that goes. It's one or the other. James goes on to say, if any man lacketh wisdom, ask God in faith and you'll get it. You know that's a if-then equation right there? If you lack faith, you can ask, excuse me, if you lack wisdom, you can ask God and he will give it to you. But the very next thing he says, but an unstable or a double-minded man will not get these things. Let not that man think he gets anything from the Lord. That means you don't get what you ask for because you're asking God without trusting he can do what you're asking him to do. This is a lot of times the last resort mentality. You tried everything, right? Everything you've tried, and then you go, all right, I'll cry out to God. That's not how that should work. The prayer life should be so disciplined, so routine, that it is first nature to call out to the Lord. I'm still learning how to do that, but I've come a long way. You know how I've come a long way? God has put me in situations where I can only call out to him. How about that? How about that? You want to get strong in a certain, you know, like you want to get better calves or something? You're not going to go like this all the time. <sighs> Can't wait to see the gains in my calves. You're not working out your calves. You want to become a person of prayer, somebody who depends on the Lord? You're going to be put in circumstances where you have to do that. But as soon as people see that, they're like, oh, that, 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 that's not comfortable. That threatens my American way of living. Hmm. Careful. Careful. He goes on into chapter 2, and he talks about faith without works is dead, how the Jewish believers he was writing to, he's saying, you guys have all the outward appearance, but you show respect of people. Somebody comes into the church, a guy who's dressed really good, looks really good, and a homeless person. And you give preference to the one who dresses good and looks good. You say, have the best seat in the house. You sit right here. And to the homeless person, you disregard and treat them less. What does James say? He says, that's good. You're not killing one another, but you're committing adultery. You've got things going on in your mind that are not correct. That kind of Christian living will not fly at the judgment seat of Christ. Well, we let them in, Lord. We, we love the poor. We let them in. But how did you treat them? Oh. You're not going to be able to say, well, hey, I've got faith in Christ, so I don't have to go through this judgment. That's not going to save you. Faith without works is dead. 
People rush in and say, oh, well, that means, you know, without any works, you're not really saved. We know from context he's talking to believers who have respective persons who are not demonstrating their faith as God has asked it to be demonstrated, which is by our works. Then he goes into chapter 3 and he says, a lot of y'all have a problem with this thing. What is that? This. The tongue. Think about how we get into wars as countries. That's why it's it's amazing that we haven't already experienced something in in this country. Uh, Like a civil war 2.0. There's a lot of this going on. It's It's how our elections are run. How many of you guys have seen the debates recently? It's like, well, by the way, none of y'all raised your hand? Good. That's good. I mean, you know. (laughs) But there's a lot of this. I've told you this before. Someone will be asked a question, and they'll give a totally different answer, just a campaign point. What do you think about the color red? Well, I think electricity is important, and if I were elected, electricity would be free. I asked asked about the color red. Uh, Yes. And they'll get points, man. And people will go with them. That's not a sign of a healthy country. When we are back and forth with this, how easily this leads to bloodshed. That's exactly what James 3 says. Think of a huge boat, right? How do you turn that boat? An even bigger steering wheel, right? No, little tiny thing. That's connected to a much smaller thing that sits in the back and goes like this. That little rudder. How do you control a horse? Oh, well, some big video game screen with, you know, you know, virtual reality, a lot of power because, you know, horses all muscle. No, no. Little piece of metal and some leather. Right there. You can get that horse to go left, right, faster, slower, all that. James compares those two things, the rudder of a ship and the bridle in a horse's mouth, to the power of the tongue. You know how much power lies in here? Then he gets to chapter 4, which is where we're going to camp out for a little bit. And he starts to give solutions to them for these problems. And I think it's good to kind of zoom in here and and get to our point of finishing strong. First of all, we need to look at a problem. Here's the main problem. What's the problem? What's the issue? All right, I'll tell you. The problem is this, friendship with the world. That's the problem. The reason why we respect other people over somebody else is because we want preference, we want acceptance, we want to be welcomed by the world. The reason why we use this tongue inappropriately in the things that we say, which leads to the things that we do, is because we want approval and acceptance from the world. How many times do you see some actor accept an award and he says, oh, I thank God, which one? And then as soon as they say the name Jesus, I've seen this, oh, everything goes dark. All of a sudden, the multi-million dollar equipment, I I don't know what happened. There's power in that name, amen? Every knee will bow at that name, amen? Isn't it good that you're known of him? Those that have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you're known of him. Uh, I I hang my hat on all that. But that's the problem, friendship with the world. Look at verse 4. You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity, it is to be pitted against with God, whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now, in a parental relationship, which is what we now have, 
For those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, you're saved. God is now, he's not your righteous judge anymore. He is your heavenly father. That's dad. You don't have to wait for dad to come home for there to be discipline. That discipline happens as we sin. What a shame it is for a child to be acting like the enemy. How many times have we seen this in our culture? Children are raised in a God-fearing home by parents who do their best to train up a child, and then they send them off to university. And what happens? They come back hating their country and despising their parents. I can't imagine how many moms and dads have had their heart broken as their child is now their enemy. I read a story in World Magazine this week. Shocked me. Shocked me. About, this was in Canada, about a kid who thought it was oppressive to go to church three times a week. He went to public school. He told his guidance counselor how unfair this was. The guidance counselor called Child Protective Services. CPS came, removed the child from the home, put the child in foster care until there was a date to be established where the parents stand before the court and give an account. Because the kid decided, I don't want to go to Sunday school. I don't want to go to Wednesday night prayer meeting. He was removed from the home. And excuse me, that was not in Canada. That was in Washington State, America. Still that, still, that child is still the child of his mother and father, but he is now using the power of the state against his parents. Can you imagine the court date happens? What does the judge say? I think one time at church is enough. So now the state says, we will execute our custodial rights over your child if you bring him to church more than one time a week. What a shame that is. What was that dinner conversation like? I, and I'm not trying to be humorous. What is, the, what is the atmosphere in that home? That child has become the enemy of his parents. Now, I don't know how the rest of that story went. I don't know if that kid was you know, repentant and saying, you know, that was a mistake. But can you imagine being pulled out of your home? The power that a guidance counselor has in that? What's the point of this illustration? Boy, they're still, they're still family, but they weaponed the state against the family. We can have the same kind of behavior when we, as believers, decide, I want to be with the world. I want to do what the world says is right. I want to be buddy-buddy with the world. That is putting yourself in a position of the enemy. And you're a child of God. That's not how things should go. Look at verse 5. Very difficult, verse 5. I don't know why, but a lot of people don't understand it. We're going to talk about it here. In the middle of this conversation, the rebuke of worldliness, right in verse 5 it says, Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? That spirit that lusteth to envy. This is not in a sinful way. This is saying the Holy Spirit that is within you 
desires your wholehearted devotion to the Lord. As it should. As it should. Hold your spot here in a second and look in Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. You probably know this passage, but I want you to be able to mentally link these two things together because it's important to see why that verse 5 in James 4 is there. This does not mean that the Holy Spirit is sinful. God is described all through the Old Testament as a jealous God. Why? He deserves worship. I don't say that with any asterisk, with any, oh, you know, I don't want to offend anybody. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Do we recognize that? God is not preferential here. It's not, oh, you can opt in and opt out. No, no. He will get the praise, honor, and glory that he rightfully deserves. Amen? Verse 17. Galatians chapter 5. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against... Now, it doesn't say lusteth against, but it's already implied from the beginning of the verse. They desire against one another. Tim Tebow was being interviewed last night. And, you know, this is a God-fearing man. I've read his interpretation on the gospel. His dad has it right. I think Tim Tebow also has a good description of the gospel. He uses repent out of context. But in his little glory to God, all these different things, he looked at the FSU sideline and he said, and we don't like them. (laughs) I just thought that's, that's a really good example of the flesh and the spirit, right? FSU being the flesh. University of Florida being the spirit? No. That was for Bob. But that hatred that we see in college rivalries and all that kind of stuff, that's games. Those teams, they come together most of the time. They're for each other as athletes. But the spirit of your, excuse me, the flesh nature is against your spirit. It strongly pushes against it. And the spirit strongly pushes against the flesh. Look, continue on. They are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye, who is ye, the believer, cannot do the things that ye would. This is why we have to be connected to the vine. John 15, 5. Without me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. You walk in the Spirit, you're not going to be judged according to what your flesh does. And he lists the works of these things, that all of the things that the spirit does, excuse me, that the flesh does. That's a pretty nasty list. And you may say, well, I haven't done most of that. Well, you can do all of it. That's the point. All of that is available for you to do. You shouldn't. But because you have a flesh nature, that's what the flesh desires to do when you want to walk in the spirit. There's, there's major conflict here. So go back to James. And when he says there in James chapter 4 and verse 5, do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in, the, in, in us lusteth to envy? He's arguing from, don't you already know? He just said the same thing in verse 4. You, did you catch that? Look what he said in verse 4. Know ye not. I say, don't you know these things? That's like the child who disobeys mom and dad, and he knows he's breaking the standard that was set. The parent in all of their, they'd be totally justified in this to say, don't you know what I told you? That's a sign of good parenting. If your kids are being disciplined and they don't know why, 
That's not good. You set the standard, you set the expectation to meet the standard. When they break the standard, we have to ask why. That's good parenting. God, our Heavenly Father, He doesn't even have the ability to be a bad parent. Amen? And what is said here is, don't you know, friendship of the world, don't you know the Spirit is against the flesh? But, verse 6, but He giveth more grace. That's the reminder, which is my second point. The first point, friendship with the world, being an enemy of God. The second point is, He gives grace. You don't muster it up within yourself. He gives it. How does He give it? You look at that cross. You look at that empty tomb. And when we come together for communion, you remember the price that was paid. That's grace. That is getting what we do not deserve. What do I deserve? An eternity separated from God. What do I receive? Forgiveness. Grace. We, that should not get something. We're like, yes, I know. Well, it's, it's a bullet point in our statement of faith. That's the whole thrust of the Christian life. I'm forgiven. How can we forgive our enemies? Remember that you were forgiven. How can I love those that hate me? Remember how God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners. Even what it says here in verse 4, we can imply from what we already know about God that he loved his enemies and gave his son for them. That's Christian life. We see that in the gospel message. Wherefore he saith, verse 6, God resisteth the proud. When I was growing up, living uh, right off of here, off Hanley Road, we would go to my grandmother's house. She had a little bit of property. And there were peacocks there. Okay, now as a kid, those things were weird. Weird. One time you'd see them and they just looked like a fat, multicolored chicken. And then they do the fanning thing, and you're like, whoa, what is that? I half expected it to start twirling around, and it would like, you know, have some sort of aerial strike on me. It's so weird. But the weirdest thing with peacocks, man, was the way they'd go like this. It was so weird, because you're looking at a bird, you're like, where's the neck and the vertebrae and all that? But they would put that chest out, fan those things, and then they'd do that, hey, yeah, you know? And it's like, What? I, Every time I see the word pride or proud in the Bible, it is just linked to that memory of those peacocks. It is like the biggest show of, I'm here! Look at me! Look at what I've done! I think that's why Ephesians 2.9 is so important. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now that's regarding salvation. But in your Christian life, it ain't, look at me! Look at what I've done. God resists that, even in his children. He resists it. Look what it says. But, here's the opposite. Giveth what? Grace unto the what? Humble. So here's the choices. If we were to put this under the category of friendship with the world, an enemy of God, friendship with the world is pride. 
It is walking around thinking you're somebody that you're not. Now, my job here is not to take the hammer of the Scripture and just beat you down, but it is to remind you, if you're in a successful ministry, God giveth that grace. If you're somebody who is eloquent to win souls, God gives that grace. He's working through you. He works in concert with you, but He gets the glory. Amen? Paul said, I don't like, he says to the church at Corinth, you guys are in groups. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you guys. Somebody plants, another person waters. Who gives the increase? God does. Who's going to get the glory at the end of it all? God is. We're going to cast those rewards back at his feet. And we're going to sing praises forever and ever and ever. And there won't be a choir practice. Because everyone's going to sing real good. That just scared me. That thing popped off. Sorry. (laughs) I literally thought that was a roach or something. (laughs) Yikes. (laughs) Did somebody prank that? I just said there would not be choir practice. So that was James. He's like, cue the popping microphone. (laughs) Just kidding. But when we get to heaven, we're going to sing perfectly to who? To the Lord, to God, because he deserves it. He gets the praise. I'm not here. I'm not going to stand in heaven and say, I'm such a good person because I believed. No, no. I'm here because of the Lord. We remember that. And we don't just, that's one thing that we did, and then we move on. You live in that way. Look at what this says here. Verse 7 Getting into my next point. For the sake of time, we won't look here, but please write down this verse, okay? Proverbs 13.10. It's a great verse, but we've got to get to some other places in the Old Testament. I don't think we're going to have time. I don't want to rush this. Proverbs 13.10. The only way that contention happens between two people is because of pride. And there's an example in the Scripture about two... disciples to apostles being against one another. And it uses the word contention. There was pride involved there. Now remember, the scripture is very important. It does not support lying like some other holy texts do. Go look in the Quran about some of those things. Google that. It's pretty interesting what the version of God in the Quran says is acceptable. But the scripture does record the sin of man. And we see that. So the contention that came between those two people, it was because of pride. Not to say who, but I've had this experience, haven't you? Don't you know there's, don't you know it, there's a point in an argument where you're like, yeah, I'm ready. I'm going to go today. And you go ahead and just you argue with that person. You know you're going to do it. You know there's a line. You're getting closer and closer. And then you just go, you know what? I'm ready today. And you argue. That's pride. Contention doesn't happen of two people that are walking in the Spirit. They agree with one another. There's harmony there. Look at verse 7. There are three things within this third point here under the banner of humble yourselves. We just saw that in verse 6. God giveth, but giveth grace unto the humble. So, 7, this is verse 7, 
Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. What does it mean to submit? Look in Galatians 2.20. I think, now there's many places we could go in the scripture to prove this out, but this one to me is the clearest. You're talking about a man here in Paul while he was called Saul, who had all the education. And we're not talking about, you know, frivolous education, privileged education. He had all of the standards. He met them. He had the support of God's chosen people, Israel, to go and persecute the church. And he did. And there's no question, he took lives. He bore witness against believers to end their lives. And their lives ended. That same man, now after he has experienced the truth and come to faith in Christ, says this in Galatians 2.20. He says, I am, present tense, crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. He says, I'm dead, but I'm alive. What does that mean? Paul views himself as dead to the flesh. God wanted his name changed, and so he was referred to that. But I think it's a good illustration. Saul died. Paul is alive in Christ. Now, that's a factual truth, but it's something that is conditional upon how you live. Listen to what I say here. It's a factual truth. You were dead in Christ. You were raised with him. Positionally, that's all taken care of. But here in this life, you have to choose to humble yourself. That's a choice that we make. And it doesn't, I'm going to be very honest with you, it is hard to do. Why? Because you've got a nature that's against it. Verse 20. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. He realizes the life that I have is the Lord living through me. You see the truth of John 15 here? Abide in me and I in you. Which I now, and the life which I now live, the present tense life, in the flesh, he's not saying in his flesh nature, but in his body. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Those are his two thrusts. And we see later in Philippians, he says, I want to also take part in his sufferings. But that, Paul, why do you do what you do? Because he loved me and gave himself for me. Why did you, he just, Everything that he did before was counted as waste, he says in Philippians. All of it. Useless. Why? Because he's got Christ now. That is how we submit. We reverse it. If there's an order and we say, this is my will, this is God's will, once I get satisfied, then I'll take care of you, Lord. Love you. Hang tight. It's not the Christian life. That's friendship with the world. So there needs to be a reverse. Lord, I'm going to do what you want. And my needs and desires are yours. I heard this illustration in camp. It always stuck with me. Freddie used this illustration. He said, you have to look at, this was on dedication night, when all the kids are, you know, you verified that everybody's trusted in Christ, but now you're getting kids to start thinking about what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And there's an illustration Serving the Lord is not writing a list of wants and needs and then signing your name on the bottom and giving it to God and say, I'll do this. But make sure you read the fine print because I won't do that. And I won't do that under certain conditions. 
Instead, serving the Lord is a blank piece of paper with your name on the bottom, signed. Lord, fill it out. I'm here. That stuck with me as a kid. That stuck with me intently. I often think about that illustration. When I'm going through things that I don't understand, I say, Lord, I signed it and I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. That's submission. It's not just in this. Talk is cheap. Show me. Show me that you've submitted to the Lord. And don't even worry about showing me. Show it to the Lord. Paul lived that kind of life. Go back to um, James. He says there in verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. The next thing is, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, in a lot of charismatic churches, they love to be outward evidence of this. I've seen a lot of things where people just stand up on the pews and they're like, get out of here, devil. Get out of here. And they're like, you know, hollering and all this stuff, claiming promises and all that stuff. The best way to resist the devil is to obey the Lord, period. What is the thrust of the devil? Well, we know from Genesis 3 and Matthew 4, here's the tools of the devil. I talked about this several weeks ago. Doubt, deny, dismiss, and disobey God's word. Doubt. Hath God said? What did, he say to, what did the devil say to Jesus? Oh, you're hungry. No, you could just command these stones to become bread. Oh, I want to take you to a high point. Oh, well, if you were to just throw yourself off this building, don't you know that the angels won't let you even dash your foot? Takes them before all of the world and says, if you just submit to me, I'll give you all this. You know, Satan could have done that. He's the prince, the power, and the ruler of this world. Tempt not the Lord thy God. That's what Jesus said. Heard the offer, answered it with the truth. You and I need to be like that. Amen? When the world starts, you know, just a little sin. It's not that bad. It's just social drinking. It's not bad. Careful. Careful. That's just, you know, it's just a movie. You can skip through those things. How about we just don't watch it at all? Well, you know, they're against you, so you can be mean towards them. They cut you off in traffic. Let them know. That's not safe. How about you just let it go? Doubt, deny, dismiss, and disobey. That's what the devil wants to do. So how do you resist the devil? You obey God. That's what the disciples did. We would rather obey God than man. And they got whipped up for it. Eventually lost their lives. Well, that's not fair. Well, guess what? The world hates God. And God is against the world. Demonstrated his love for it. But for his children, you don't play there. That's not something that we're supposed to be around. The third thing, and my last point here, is in verse 8. Now, verse 8 leaks into verse 9 and 10. And there's a lot here. And it's like, why? Well, you're going to see. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn, and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. What is with the cleaning of the hands and the laughing to crying and the heaviness? Purify heart. What is that? This is confession. This is getting right with dad and saying, dad, I've sinned. Now we have two examples of confession in the Old Testament. One is a bad example the other is a good example. Both involve men that sinned. The first one is King Saul. Samuel was delayed. He's supposed to come back at a certain time. He was delayed. Saul, already on a downward trend. Don't buy that stock. He was already just cruising for a bad situation. He did what he was not supposed to do, and he offered the offering. Okay, we'll stop there for a moment. Other hand, we have David. He's supposed to go out and represent as the nation was battling, but he stayed home. And in that, he saw Bathsheba, lusted after her, decided to have her for himself in adultery, and went, sought her, slept with her. Uriah comes back. Who's Uriah? Bathsheba's lawful husband. Notice the names in Uriah and David are not the same. <laughs> he did what he was not supposed to do. He tried to hide, hide, hide. Uriah wouldn't bite. Uriah still didn't know. Uriah died not knowing. You say, he died not knowing. How? David sent him to the front lines. So you have these two men, two kings, serious mistakes. Let's look at how each one responded. We'll go to 1 Samuel chapter 13. Hold your spot here in James. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Now I'm going to say this too. When you read these stories, don't get high-minded here and go, these guys were silly. I would never. Well, careful. Careful. Because if that were true, James wouldn't have a book to write. Hello. <laughs> Page 331, verse 10, 1 Samuel 13. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of the offering, the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. Now, I don't want to read a lot in here, but wow, that's pretty hypocritical. As soon as Saul acted on his impatience, the guy who showed up, or the guy who was the only one who was supposed to do the sacrifice just showed up. And I can't help but see Saul like, oh, i got to get ahead of this. Hey! The problem, look at what was said in verse 11. Samuel said, what hast thou done? Hmm. Not a hello, wow, it's been tough, I was delayed, blah, blah, blah. Samuel knew Saul made a decision. This is the point of I have, this is the opportunity for Saul to say, I disobeyed. But look at Saul's response. Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattered from me and that thou, let's modernize that, you camest not within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Therefore said I, the Philistines, will come down upon me to Gilgal, 
and I had not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered the burnt offering. Pay attention. He said, that person, you, them, not me. We like to call that game. We all know it well. We're all all all-stars with this game, the blame game. Well, we start as kids, right? Especially if you have siblings. Any any of y'all have siblings here? You know. You get in a fight with a sibling, the first defense in the court of the parent's uh, judgment is, he made me do it. No. You made a choice. This is improper confession. Samuel asked for an answer. Saul deflected. And it had serious consequences. 13. Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. You go read what the Psalms and the Proverbs say about a fool. Not a good thing. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God when he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever, but now the kingdom shall not, excuse me, thy kingdom, Saul, your reign, it will not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. Who's that? David. Now hang on. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. David commits his sin, hides it, The Lord sends a messenger named Nathan. What a job Nathan has. In verse 7 of 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see, after Nathan gives him an illustration about a traveler and a rich man, some sheep, obviously painting the story of what David did to Uriah. David, his anger is kindled against this story. He requires the life of the one who sinned in that account. And then it is said in verse 7. Look at what this says. Nathan said to David, David, thou art the man. So here it is. Woo! Everything's been opened. There's the sin, the nasty, rotting infection of sin. There it is, David, and that's yours. Can you imagine the shock? This man thought he got away with it. Might have gnawed him here and there, but now it's open for everyone to see Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. You remember what Saul did? I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom. I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hath taken his wife to be thy wife, and hath slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house. Go study David's familial history from here. It's not good. His son Absalom wrecked havoc on the kingdom. Terrible things. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me. Take a look at how God looks at this sin. You have despised me. I don't think God has changed. When we sin in the same way, it's despicable to him. He doesn't go, oh, you know, (laughs) I didn't see it. And has taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, 
I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with the wives in the sight of the son. For thou didst it secretly, this sin that you did, you thought nobody saw it, you did it with the intent to be deceptive, but I, Nathan, is relaying God's words here. So the I is not Nathan, but God says, I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Every person will look at what happened in David's family and know this is because of his sin. 13, David's response. Here it is. He's getting ready. He's got all the things going on. I was tired. She agreed. He was mean to her. Whatever it was. No, no, what does he say? I have sinned against the Lord. That's proper confession. David said, I did it. And I was wrong. And you go read the Psalms of Contrition where David, in anguish, dealt with this sin. Their bitter tears. There's no sweetness in them save the sweetness of forgiveness. Amen? But what James is saying, we see the demonstration here in 2 Samuel 12. 1 Samuel 13, not so much. Saul, this person, that person, I was just doing what I thought was right. That's not confession. Yeah, I made a mistake, but you didn't show up. Hang on. That's not agreement. You're basically saying, God, you made me do this. What is real confession? Go back to James. Having looked at those two stories, now I think it makes sense in verse 8. James chapter 4 and verse 8. Right in the middle there. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. The priests couldn't even get close to any kind of sacrifices until they washed themselves. You and I want to have a right walk with the Lord. You want to finish strong? That's sin in your life? Cleanse it. Confess it. What does the word confess mean? It means come to an agreement. It's not just admitting you did something wrong. It's knowing that you, you willfully did that. And it's not just apologizing. There's an intent to remain clean. Now he says, and purify your hearts, your mind, you double-minded. That's how they're acting, double-minded. You want the blessings, but you're not doing the things that bring about blessings. Verse 9, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. I read an interesting view on this. In fellowship with the Lord, there's joy, there is peace. But when we bring sin in, it disrupts that. And instead of laughing about it, having, you know, oh, it is what it is, that should cause us grief. We should not be settled with that. And your joy to heaviness. It's heaviness because you realize Jesus paid for this sin and I'm just doing it. I'm just doing it. Now he caps what he already started in verse 6. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. In closing, 1 John, would you please, verse 18. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18. <laughs> you can see James' uh, concentrated truth, amen? He was dealing with the Jewish people in a very harsh way. Not because he didn't love them, but because he loved them and wanted them to go from this immaturity to maturity. First John says this, chapter 4 and verse 18, there is no fear in love. If you're here today and you're serving the Lord out of fear, you got to ask why. 
If it's because you have unconfessed sin in your life, well, guess what? That's not love. And that's what you're walking in. But perfect love casteth out fear. What does it mean by perfect? It means mature, complete love casteth out fear. If you're walking in God's will, you don't have to be afraid. What a, what a beautiful place that is where many believers do not walk. It's a nice place to be. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. Folks, that's what the scripture says. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? This stings. This should bother those of us who have this double-minded life. There's a problem with us when we live out of hatred, when we've got bitterness and wrath and unconfessed sin. Why? If you can't love the one you can see, how can you love the one you can't? It's incompatible. This is the secret sauce, right? The family recipe, whatever you want to call it. It's love, folks. That's what's missing. That's what's missing. It's not rigid obedience. Following rules for the sake of following rules does not make one acceptable in God's sight. What's going on here? I'm not saying in your heart, but I'm saying in the seat of your emotions, what's going on? Are you just going soul winning because you want to check a box to get better credit from somebody? Are you going to church to say, well, you know, it's 52 opportunities and I made 50. That was a pretty good percentage. You praying just because God told you to and it's hollow and empty? Where's the love? That's what's missing. There's a lot of people who fit that verse 20. I love God, blah, blah, blah. But inwardly, you hate your brother. You, God does not feel that way about your brother. He loves them. 21. And this commandment have we from him that he who loveth God love his brother also. Mm. That'll solve a lot of church problems very quickly. Very quickly. And you can tell who's more willing to confess when you bring up these verses. You can close your Bible. Don't forget Proverbs 13.10. That's a good thing to remember when you're about to get into an argument with a loved one or a believer in Christ, whatever it may be, even if they're caught up in false doctrine, even the rebuke that has to be made needs to come from a place of love. But in order to finish strong, we have to understand the things we must do. And it's really threefold. I'll just repeat them to you again. Submit to God in humility, resist the devil by obedience to God's word, and draw near to God. And I think that drawing near is saying, Dad, I messed up. And knowing he forgives. I'll be honest with you. That's one of the things that I'm, I'm looking forward to as a parent. When Remy does wrong, and she will, folks, I know, don't let the little 
Don't let them blue eyes deceive you. Okay? There's going to come a time. She's going to do wrong. She's going to know she does wrong. I'm looking forward to the day where I can demonstrate the love that God has demonstrated to me. I can show that to her. That doesn't mean I just keep letting her do what she wants to do because I love her. There'll be consequences. But you know, she's going to understand better fellowship with the Lord through my demonstration of God's love. Now, I don't have to wait until she turns of a certain age to start learning those things. I can do it now. First opportunity you have to demonstrate that kind of love is in your marriage. You love your spouse unconditionally or do you hold things against them? That You hold things against them. That's called a war chest and that is not from God. You want to finish strong in the Christian life. It's not a rigid following and all these different things. It's drawing close to the Lord in humility. Lord, I need you. And then doing what he says. It's that simple. And it'll come out in many different ways. But the number one product of that is you'll love. You'll love. If you're here today and you don't know where you're going to go when you die, we need to get that straight. Everything that I've talked about today, a large majority of it, is for those who are already believers. Now, you can be a believer of many different things. You can believe in all sorts of people and places and things, but I'm talking about where have you put your trust for the payment of your sin? That's what needs to be solved. That's what separates us from God. If this block of sin represents what it is, and this hand represents you and me, we all have this sin. God, he loves us very much, but this sin separates us from him. This needs to be paid. This must be paid, and it will be paid. And the question is going to be, who are you going to trust to make the payment? That's really what it is. You're going to trust yourself, your good works? I did this, I didn't do that. That'll get me to heaven. That's not how you get this sin paid. The Bible says we're saved by grace, not of ourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. You're not going to be able to stand before God and say, I went to church a lot, so therefore it pays for this sin. The wages of sin is death. This hand represents the only begotten Son of God whose name is Jesus Christ. What Jesus did is he came into this world, lived a sinless, perfect life, and he went to the cross, catch this, to pay for your sin. He was buried and he rose again three days later. So here he is. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's coming back. The payment for sin has been accepted, but here's the crunch time decision. Will the payment of Jesus Christ be applied to your account? The payment's ready and available. How do we get it applied to our sin? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. There's the application of the payment of sin. You by faith in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross, when you believe on him, you receive the free gift of eternal life. The payment of sin is made to your account. You now have peace with God. All your sin is paid, amen? I love when I see you guys smile, I really do. I'm seeing some of y'all smile now and weep because you know what that means. You know what, it's, it's everything. It is everything. I give the little prayer at Thanksgiving for my family and I say the same thing every time because it hasn't changed. I'm thankful for the blood of Jesus. That should not change. 
You receive the forgiveness of sins by placing your faith in him. He already died and was, he rose again. All that's taken care of. Now you're a child of God. Now you need to finish strong. Not to verify, are you really a child of God? That's not healthy. You are a child of God. How are you going to finish? That's what this message was about. How are you going to live this life here? But if you're here today and you walked in not knowing where you're going to go when you die, I want you to know that you can have assurance you'll be in heaven. Why? Jesus paid for all your sin. You put your trust in him, that payment is put to your account. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Heads are bowed, knives are closed. Nobody's looking around. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I walked in today not knowing where I would go when I die. I was trusting in myself, my good works, the fact that I was overall a good person, but what you said made sense, that Jesus died for all my sins. And this morning, I put my trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who shed his blood was buried and rose again. I believe that he is the one who paid for my sin. I know I'm saved now. If that describes you, I would like to pray for you. I'm going to ask for a moment if you would raise your hand to let me know. Raising your hand doesn't save you. God bless you. I see you. Raising your hand lets me know. Anyone else before we close? I would like to pray for those who have trusted in Christ this morning. Heads are bowed, knives are still closed. We're really, we're here, guys. We're at the last part of the year. You, there's a lot of introspection. There's a lot of things going on. But let me tell you, we are not guaranteed tomorrow. My challenge to you is to ask, what are you doing now for the Lord? Don't wait till January to get it right. Get right with Him now. Next week we'll have confession, excuse me, communion, where we will have confession as a part of that. But will you get right with him right now in this pew? Talk to him. Thank him for what he's done. What a good God we serve, amen? Father, thank you for your love and your mercy and your forgiveness. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. For men like James and John and other writers of the scripture that, Lord, they have their own personal styles, but it's all you. Thank you for giving us instruction lovingly. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things.